So I also developed a philosophy of leadership that I use when I talk about leadership. If you don't hear noise outside of your window, you're not doing your job. So mm -hmm. I learned that the noise is part of doing the right thing. If you're not making some people angry, you're not making enough change. And you have to learn to live with that conflict. You have to learn to appreciate the expression of anger as, as you know, and I mean, you can't get drunk on it, if you will, but um, a little bit of conflict and a little bit of resistance is absolutely essential to move forward. Um, so not seeing that as a terrible thing, um, but seeing it as part of the process of making good change. Everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. I am delighted to be joined today by someone who perhaps needs no introduction. Patricia McGuire is one of higher ed's longest serving college and university presidents. Now in her 33rd year as president of Trinity Washington University in the DC area, she has led a remarkable transformation of her institution and is widely viewed by those who know her as a wise, courageous, compassionate, and innovative leader. We will include the link to her full bio in the show notes, which will include mention of the many, many awards and recognitions that she has received over the course of her career. But for now, Pat, I am delighted to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Well, Melissa, thank you for inviting me. And that introduction was so generous, I maybe should stop there, but we'll go on. <laughs> oh, we must go on because I know folks are going to want to really hear uh, about, hear your story. And so Thanks. maybe we could just start by, um, for those who are not familiar with Trinity Washington University, can you provide mm -hmm. a high level overview of your mission, who you serve, your DNA, and, and how the institution has changed over time? Absolutely. I'm delighted to do so. And in fact, this interview comes at a wonderful time because Trinity is celebrating our 125th anniversary this year. Ah, congratulations. For, yeah. yeah. For one of the nation's historic Catholic women's colleges, getting to 125 years mm -hmm. is a really big deal. There's only about eight of us left to claim that identity. Uh, mm -hmm. Some merged there. At one time, there were almost 190 of this kind of institution. Many merged, but but most closed. Um, but we, uh, along with others, uh, persist. And uh, we were founded uh, because Catholic University would not admit women back in 1897. And the sisters of Notre Dame who founded us, courageous women, you know, nuns have been courageous for centuries. And they said, women have a right to a higher education. And they founded Trinity in 1897. Um, up until the uh, 1980s or so, Trinity was primarily a traditional undergraduate residential liberal arts college. Uh, but then when co-education hit, our enrollment declined and Trinity diversified uh, into adult education, into professional education as well. Today, we still have our core women's college, which with about eight to 900 students in it in any given year, um, and then we have professional studies, nursing and health professions, and a variety of other academic units that are co-educational, but women are still 95% of our total population. The big change at Trinity over the years has been in our demographics. And uh, Trinity today is also, 
we're proud to say, a predominantly Black as well as Hispanic-serving institution. In fact, there's only three private colleges in America that are both what we call a PBI and an HSI. Um, it's a very distinctive characteristic because our student body is 55% Black and 30% Hispanic, um, and we're very proud of that. We Our mission today, um, the, the mission of the Sisters of Notre Dame continues in social justice, and today we interpret that to bring a great higher education to the women who need us most, which are the women in the city and the women who face barriers to education because of immigration status or poverty or other things. So that's Trinity today. Wow, and that's such a compelling, compelling story. And I'm gonna come back, circle back to that in a little in a little while, because I would imagine that uh, that comes as a result of a strategy that was put in place many years ago. But I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on that for okay. a second. Um, I want to ask you about a quote. I have read somewhere that you have been quoted as saying that your career has been a series of well-managed coincidences. First of all, did you actually say that? And, and if so, what did you mean by that? Well, actually, that was said to me by okay. uh, a dean at Georgetown Law School where I was working as a young lawyer. And I was fussing about my career and what was going to happen to me. And because I didn't really want to go into traditional legal practice, I went to Trinity undergrad, I went to Georgetown Law, but I didn't like the idea of being stuck in a law office. And the dean who had had also a rather remarkable career uh, as an antitrust lawyer, and he had been chair of the Federal Trade Commission, the late Bob Potofsky, he was wonderful. And he said to me over lunch one day, he said, you know, a good career is a series of well-managed coincidences. And that stuck with me because rather than plotting it out, I never knew when I went to Trinity that I'd come back as president. I never knew when I went to law school that I wouldn't be a traditional lawyer that I, and yet I, I deal with law every day in my job. Um, but I made myself able by, by volunteering a lot. And I've said this to students, I am where I am today, not because of my paid work, but because I was a volunteer actually. Um, I was volunteering uh, with Trinity as a class agent and so forth and got a seat on the board of trustees. And then one thing led to another and I became the president uh, at a time of great need. So uh, I always advise students, it's important to have all the skill sets. It's important to have goals, of course, but you should never be closed to the fact that other doors can open up for you. And that has worked even in this long career now I've had as a college president um, where I'm always looking for opportunity. You can never stop looking for opportunity. And that's what that phrase really means. Boy, what wise, wise advice. So thank you for thank you for sharing that with us and with our listeners. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, you are one of higher ed's longest serving presidents. You started when you were 36 years old, I think, if, if my math. <laughs> and you can do the math so you know how old I am now. <laughs> so I, I'm curious how you have grown and changed as a leader over the course of your tenure and uh, your most significant leadership lessons. You must have quite a few by now. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I actually tell people I've been at the same place and I've had about five presidencies in the same oh. place uh, because definitely it has not been the same in each era. And Trinity has had many eras since I, I've been here. Um, I, I tell the story starting out. Um, I was a young lawyer. I had a big mouth. That's why I got the job. The board said, you've got a big mouth. You try to fix it. And um, my very first day on the job, I met with the faculty and I had this 
beautifully crafted speech. I spent hours writing a speech and I stood up and gave the best speech of my life to the faculty. And when it was over, there was dead silence. They didn't clap, they didn't smile. They got up and walked out of the room. And I said to the vice president for academic affairs who had been my history teacher when I was a student here, I said, Jean, what just happened? And she said to me, don't ever talk at the faculty again. You should never go in and give a speech to the faculty. And I was blown away because I thought that leadership at that time, I thought that leadership was giving a big speech and everybody would cheer and come follow me. Well, of course, that's not what leadership is at all. So, so I had to learn from my mistakes that leadership is about persuading people uh, about the courses that they should take, but it has to be their idea. It can't always be my idea. Now, I learned over the years, sometimes I had to be tough and give a few tough speeches. And so I didn't back down from standing up and saying, no, this is a direction we really have to go. But I also learned when to step back and let the people find their way and let the people argue about, well, is that the right way or the wrong way? Um, learning to listen is something all of us struggle with. I still struggle with it today because the older I get, the more impatient I feel sometimes. And yet the other thing is, the older I get, the more secure I am. So now if somebody doesn't like something, I'm like, okay, you know, have at it. You tell me what you don't like. Nothing threatens me anymore. When I was younger, I probably did feel threatened. Um, and so felt the need to prove my rightness. Um, that's always a mistake for a leader. And I realize in hindsight, um, I wish I had some of the wisdom that being old now gives mm -hmm. me when I was 45, now that I'm well on the other side of that. So um, I, I learned those things. I also learned, I'll say this and then I'll, I'll stop. Um, change management is what leaders really have to do and institutional change management is extraordinarily difficult because you never know what landmines you're gonna step on next. And, and you may think that people want a particular kind of change because they want the college to thrive, for example. This is really hard in higher ed. Um, I assumed at the outset that everybody wanted the place not only to survive, but to thrive. And what I discovered was, especially because some of the changes that occurred at Trinity were hard and controversial. I mean, nothing is harder in America than racial change, right? Mm -hmm. And there were some people who would rather that we had died and closed and gone away than that we remained open and thrived as a predominantly black Hispanic serving institution. Um, and so some of the choices that you make to give new life to an old institution actually are choices that some people so desperately don't want you to make that um, they, they want the institution to close. That was hard for me to learn because I couldn't imagine that as a default position that you, that you should close rather than let people be educated, a new population. Um, so that was a learning experience for me, but we got through it. Yeah, oh, that's a, that's, those are such powerful lessons. And yeah. from having been in higher ed, uh, having served as a provost for many years, <laughs> I have, I've experienced firsthand how people can get attached yeah. to certain uh, ideologies that right. sort of take precedence in their minds over uh, the well-being of the institution. So right. I really appreciate your candor in that regard. Yeah. Um, and it's actually a good segue to my next question. Mm -hmm. And that is the fact that uh, Trinity has certainly been transformed under your leadership, as you mentioned at the beginning. 
um, the transformation has been uh, both compelling and uh, challenging and significant. So could you could you help us unpack that a little bit more in terms mm -hmm. of the most important, from your perspective now looking back, the most important and impactful pillars of change and development and mm -hmm. uh, what the strategy was behind each one, mm -hmm. if there was one, because as, <laughs> as we know, there isn't always. Sometimes the most impactful change doesn't always result uh, from a, a clear cut strategy, but right. Um, right. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, uh, so in the controversial years of Trinity's change from being uh, a mostly white Catholic residential institution to the very diverse institution we are today, um, I've had people say to me, well, how did you plan um, to change the complexion of your student body? And I look at them dumbfounded usually and say, you know, sociology happens. Um, I did not set out in 1989 um, with a vision of what Trinity is today by any stretch of the imagination. What I learned I had to do, though, was to be open. This is the opportunity, again, that I referenced earlier, the coincidence and the opportunity to be open to change. So here's how part of the change started, though. Um, when I first became president in my first couple of weeks, um, I asked the admissions director how many students we had from the District of Columbia, which is our city. And she said, oh, none. And I said, what do you mean, oh, none? She said, oh, they can't do the work here. Now, the, the underlying racist tone of that was very, very clear. And I learned that Trinity was not recruiting in our own backyard. And it was, it was deeply racist. It was classist. It was, it was also, by the way, shooting the institution in the foot. Um, and I said, well, hell's bells. We're going to recruit in the D.C. public schools and in, in, in our backyard. And um, I was reinforced in that by some of the sisters in the founding congregation who said in board meetings, we founded Trinity not to be like every other Catholic college, but to provide a great higher education to women who don't have access. And the women who don't have access don't look like us anymore, but they are, there are thousands of them at our doorstep and let's go after them. So the nuns understood that it, absolutely. The alumni resisted it. Some of the alumni, not all, but many of the alums, the faculty resisted it. And as more and more um, predominantly black, low-income students from mostly public schools in DC began to come to Trinity, there was a great deal of controversy. And what I realized then, and, and I mean, remember, this was a, an old line women's college. When I started in 1989, there were only 300 full-time students here. We did have, I didn't start the weekend college. We did have hundreds of women in the part-time adult studies weekend college. And also, by the way, in a graduate program in teacher education that was mostly DC public school teachers. But the traditionalists in the college, the faculty and the alums, never talked about those programs. Those were mostly women of color. Those were mostly evening students. And the traditionalists thought I was going to restore the real Trinity. You know, there was a lot of that, the real Trinity and all those other people. Um, and, and what I realized as we went through this and we welcomed more local students, that that was where my need to create strategy had to kick in. And also um, to be somewhat of a, a ramrod um, to say to faculty and staff and alumni, no, this is the right thing. This is what we must do. We must welcome these new populations. Um, and this is not, they said, you're changing the mission. And I said, no, no, nothing in the original mission said it had to be only white Catholic women. Um, that was not the, the original mission was 
opportunity for women. And that's what we're still doing. We are more faithful to mission today than we were at maybe some other times. And actually some of our middle states reviewers um, wrote about that and affirmed that. Um, but it was hard for a while because race, social class, academic preparation, and even the difference between, you know, an English major and a nursing major, people felt that the old college was disappearing, that I was destroying um, the college uh, as part of the strategy to turn things around here. And it wasn't, it was modernizing the place and it was opening the gates for new populations to enjoy the great education. So that was what was happening. Well, and so for other, other leaders that are in the midst of trying to make change or to innovate, uh, what takeaways from your experience? I mean, one of the things I'm hearing is the importance of being very clear. It sounds like mm -hmm. you were very clear about what mm -hmm. you intended to do. You did have mm -hmm. a strategy in this regard, but mm -hmm. what else would you what what else would you say that's important yeah. in terms of leading and managing change? Yeah, um, there were a couple of things that that were really important in the years of the greatest change at Trinity. One was. I had the backing of my board throughout, always being sure that the board of trustees is backing you up. If you don't have board backup, you're never gonna be able to pull it off. Um, so cultivating a good board, creating a good board, making sure they understand the plan and don't hang you out to dry, uh, that is exceptionally important. The second thing is to realize, and this is, this is part of learning to be a leader, um, you know, 90% of the noise is made by 2% of the people. Um, so the people who were screaming the loudest um, were a very tiny minority, but they were taking up all the space, all the time, all the air. When most of the people were like, oh, that's interesting. Let's, let's go along with it. And it took me almost 10 years to realize that the alumni of Trinity were actually quite proud of the changes taking place here. But there was a tiny group of 10 or 20 people who were, who were making all the noise and it was pretty miserable they had the capacity to make people feel terrible, but they weren't, they weren't the real ones. So I also developed a philosophy of leadership that I use when I talk about leadership. If you don't hear noise outside of your window, you're not doing your job. So mm -hmm. I learned that the noise is part of doing the right thing. If you're not making some people angry, you're not making enough change. And you have to learn to live with that conflict you have to learn to appreciate the expression of anger as, as you know, and I mean, you can't get drunk on it, if you will, but um, a little bit of conflict and a little bit of resistance is absolutely essential to move forward. Um, so not seeing that as a terrible thing, um, but seeing it as part of the process of making good change. How long did it take you to become comfortable? And are you now altogether comfortable with because I will say that is something I hear from other yeah. particularly young leaders, mm -hmm. uh, first time presidents, that getting comfortable with the fact that everybody doesn't like you and doesn't uh -huh. like everything you do. So uh -huh. how do you get comfortable? Well, so first of all, I, I think that's one of the reasons why many college presidents burn out, um, because, um, you know, we're not elected politicians, we're appointed. Um, and, and these are hard jobs from the stand. I think they're the greatest jobs in the world, but they're hard from the standpoint of the, every constituency wants something from you and very few want to give you anything. You know, nobody, nobody comes into my office and asks me how I'm feeling today. Um, but they will come in and tell me why they're mad at me today, you know, and, 
Um, so I, I'm a little bit of an odd duck, I think, because um, I'm single, I live alone, uh, I go off to the woods by myself, and we'll talk a little bit more about how I refresh. So I'm very comfortable in my own skin. And um, I don't really care what people think. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, a callous or, or hard-nosed way. Um, I need to listen to them. I need to understand that. But, you know, when somebody comes in and says, you know, well, I think that you are terrible for doing this. I'm like, well, thanks for your input. You know, I'll think about that. But I don't sit around worrying about that. Now, obviously, when I was younger, I was a little more sensitive to that because, you know, when you're young, you want to be the popular girl and, you know, realizing there was a period of time when some faculty were having um, faculty dinners in their homes and other people were invited. And then I realized I wasn't being invited, you know, and, and you go through a moment like, ooh, and then you think, do I really want to spend the night in that person's home? No, <laughs> um, <laughs> let them do their thing. Um, I actually just this week said to one of my deans that sometimes by just letting, uh, and it's usually the faculty, you know, sometimes by letting a faculty member have their way when they've had a big fight with you and just say, okay, fine, do it your way that can be more powerful than letting the faculty know how annoyed and upset you are that, that you had the argument. Um, so I've learned that being calm about the dislike or calm about the resistance and accepting that that's where people are. Um, we're in a society that is so gosh darn conflictful about everything. Um, and, and it just goes with the territory, but it's also, you have to build your inner strength around that. If, if you wanna be a successful college president, and you think that success means that everybody is praising you all the time, you will absolutely last no more than a year or two. Um, you will burn out um, and you'll be very unhappy and your institution will be unhappy. Um, the, the nature of the business, actually another faculty member said to me this very week, you know, PhDs are trained to be critical. That's, that's what the nature of graduate school does, questioning everything. So you have to accept that the criticism, the questioning, the uh, let me play the devil's advocate and say a different point of view, um, that's part of who we are as academics actually. <laughs> um, so you have to buy into that as part of, uh, as part of being a president. Um, you also need to know where your friends are. And this is where uh, cultivating your board, making sure your board is always on your team, and then also building a great staff. Um, so, your provost, if you're the president, you've got to have a great provost. I do. I'm so lucky to have Dr. Carlota Ocampo as my provost. I have four deans, each one of whom is terrific, any one of whom could step into my job any moment, um, and other executives. Um, you have to build an executive team that is loyal, but also willing to question, but in a way that's respectful and healthy, and because and you're all in it together. Mm, so that's yeah. how I've navigated that. You have the experience. You've completed most of the coursework in a doctoral program, but you have not completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation, status behind with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership ABD degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the skill set you need to lead and to transform 
Educational Institutions for the 21st Century. The coursework for the ABD Degree Completion Program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your dedicated faculty advisor to your small dissertation seminar group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. I, I want to go back to... Um, you know, a couple of times you've, you've referenced women's colleges, um, the fact that there aren't a lot of them left anymore. As the leader of one still standing, can you speak to the what you believe to be the role and value of a woman's college today? And have you had discussions about going co-ed? Uh, well, you know, every so often we do the data. I do a lot of research. I actually do a lot of research myself and I have others. Um, and we look at the data all the time. And and what's interesting, you know, at one time there were uh, almost 300 women's colleges and now there's about 30. Um, most of them did disappear. A few of them merged um, successfully. Some of them went co-ed successfully. For the most part, those who uh, still exist as independent institutions and went co-ed um, they're still pretty small institutions. There's a couple that got big. Um, you know, I think of a Simmons, uh, I think of uh, a Webster and, and some others, but for the most part, um, their numbers don't look that much different from those of us that still have women's colleges in our core. Our sizes range from 1,500 to 3,000 students thereabout, and most of us are diversified institutions, and almost all of us, with a very few exceptions, almost all have some men in the mix. Mm -hmm. So uh, part of what has happened is um, the, the idea of a woman's college as a male-free institution is no longer true. Um, there are plenty of men around um, and we need, I believe, and I've been an advocate with the Women's College Coalition, could we stop acting like the presence of men somehow ruins our, our fundamental mission? It doesn't, in fact, it strengthens our mission. Um, so we shouldn't be anti-male. That's that's an old exclusionary thing. The second piece is, which is even more provocative, um, and not all of the women's colleges are there, but Trinity is a, a good example of one that made cross the Great Divide. The idea of having a room of your own, a place where women are affirmed and promoted, resonates deeply with women of color and women who have been marginalized. And so the women who who thrive at women's colleges today are not necessarily the women who could have otherwise gone to Princeton or Yale. They're at Princeton or Yale and God love them. Good for them that women, you know, women's colleges were so good that Princeton and Yale went co-ed because they saw that women could be powerful. Um, but there's another whole segment of the United States population for whom a women's college is life-saving and life-giving and the same reasons why we were founded to give women who were denied education an opportunity to grow and thrive intellectually, academically, and professionally, there still are millions of women in America who need that and who can thrive on that. You know, the old saw that, well, you have to go to college with men to learn to compete with men, that's just a lot of baloney, actually. 
um, the worst competition for any woman is in her own head. Mm -hmm. And women need to be strong and, and, and firm and knowledgeable and capable on their own. But the other pieces in our pedagogy, our women are out doing internships and, and all kinds of, of work in the co-ed environment every day. They, they're not, not exposed to, to women's education. I think today with what we see politically as the assaults on women, and I'll turn to that, and I know people don't like to discuss politics and wherever you are on, on that whole scale, the fact is that, that women are still in 2022, still not fully empowered and fully enfranchised in this country. Um, and women still have to struggle for respect, whether standing for election to any office or just you know, obtaining some of their basic rights. Um, and a women's college is a place where women can come and feel that they're getting the tools to become more self-sufficient citizens. We're not gonna change the whole social dynamic, but we can make women more self-sufficient in an education that supports them. Yeah, so our, our and I I really appreciate that um, and agree with everything that you're that you're saying. Are there some specific things that uh, a woman's college might consider doing or should consider doing in terms of remaining relevant and distinctive and competitive? Well, I think I think the first thing is, which has been true throughout our history, we have to be really good at what we need to be really good at. So so yeah. our academic programs have to be excellent and strong. Um, and the related piece is we really have to give the women who come to our institutions um, the rationale and the understanding about why um, having a place that focuses on women's development is going to make them powerful. Um, and, and we have to stop saying that we're better than co-ed because that may not be true for all women. Okay, so I've said this to the coalition, let's stop making it a head-to-head -head competition because we're, we're a small sector, we are a beautiful option in the great smorgasbord of American higher education. And for some women, um, just being in a classroom where there are not men challenging them or snarking about them or where they're not worried about the guy next to them maybe not loving them enough or something, whatever that thing is. That, that But we also hear this, by the way, from the women who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, what a relief it is to be in a classroom where it's just all women who share their life experience and, you know, that there's something about that that, that is affirming for them. Um, part of what is also strong is that faculty have to buy into that mission. So when I interview new faculty, we're always careful to try to understand, can this faculty member really be successful um, in a college that puts women first, and whether it's male or female, you know, sometimes it's female faculty who are, don't really believe in the mission and they're not successful as a result. Um, there are characteristics that we're trying to work on to make it even better, like how we take care of students who are parents, the young mothers in the group. Um, we have a lot more young mothers than we ever had at Trinity today. Um, and we work with an organization called Generation Hope that supports um, young mothers in college, and they're helping us figure out how to do an even better job. So making it an environment that is family friendly, that is supportive of women's issues, um, that uh, is not a hidden curriculum, but an, an upfront, out in front curriculum about how women are supported and affirmed. Um, it's very important. And we find that, that the women we serve gravitate to it. Mm, boy, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, let me uh, let me go back to the the question of your 
your leadership um, and for women who are out there who uh, are listening and they think, oh gosh, I'd like to be like Pat McGuire. I want to follow in her footsteps. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what advice would you have for somebody that's thinking, gosh, I, I might really want to do that? Well, I hope, I hope there will be many, not, not me, no, not Pat McGuire's, but others who will, because uh, a lot of us in my generation are getting to uh, an age that I can't even bear the, to say what the age is. You know, at some point you, you got to plan the, the next uh, generation to come along. We need new presidents rising um, in the ranks. Uh, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I do go back to that um, series of well-managed coincidences. Um, I think it's unfortunate in higher ed that um, too many searches for presidents and other leaders now go through search firms that are kind of like cookie cutters, you know, mm -hmm. that the opportunity to fall into a position from a place you weren't thinking about um, often is foreclosed because the consulting world makes it a lockstep um, and boards sometimes are not educated about the lockstep. Um, so I, I would say, first of all, um, if, if you're a younger woman um, and thinking about being a college president, um, you really need to think about what kind of institution would you like to lead? That's really important. Where do you want to do it? You know, what is the region? Because that there's a lot, as we know, in this country that differs region to region about what you can or cannot do. What kind of institution? It's very different for me in a small private institution versus my colleagues who are at large public institutions. Um, you know, and I look at them and I think I could never do that. I, I wouldn't have the patience for it. Um, those require a lot more political skill. Um, or a community college. I know a lot of great community college presidents. That's a very different job. So the first thing I would say is learn the business. Don't just assume that because um, you're smart and good, somebody's going to call you up. And that's the second thing. Nobody calls you up just because you're smart and good. So um, one of the things I recommend to most people who ask me, you have to volunteer. It's not enough to be good in your job. Um, and when I say volunteer, what do I mean? Well, Everybody's a graduate of college. So first, are you volunteering for your own college? Are you looking at whether it's the alumni board or even the board of trustees? Having board service is gonna give you a leg up in any search for leadership, um, whether that's your own college board, a different college board, or even a local nonprofit. Can you get on a foundation board? Can you get on a nonprofit board? Um, and people will say, well, that's not the same as being on the academic track, faculty, you know, tenure, faculty, dean, provost, president. Well, that's the old fashioned track. But the new fashion track is, and a lot of consultants and boards are actually looking for business leaders um, or people with business experience. Um, and whether people, you know, whether faculty agree or disagree with that, having a little bit of that experience. You also, by the way, you meet influencers on boards. So if you're looking for something, you're more likely to find the network through being um, a volunteer with an outside organization where you can meet people who can help leverage you into the kind of pathways you want to be on. Um, so those are all parts of what I would recommend. Very, very helpful. So let me go back. You had mentioned uh, you like the woods, yeah. uh, which I think must be one of the ways you recharge. Uh, how, mm -hmm. how else do you uh, recharge and keep your, your inner your inner self balanced. Well, um, so, so uh, years ago, um, I, I realized that I had to, um, I had to plan time off 
in my life, you know, and in my first couple of years, I didn't take time off and that was silly. You know, I realize now, um, and now I'm old, I need every weekend off practically. Um, I developed a hobby, wildlife photography. You know, other people might play tennis or play the piano. I don't care, but I do wildlife photography. Um, I can go off for two hours in a local wildlife refuge and totally chill out, you know, and it's the kind of hobby where when I'm trying to get that picture of an eagle or some bird or a fox, I'm not thinking about tomorrow's faculty meeting or, you know, why the budget isn't balancing it. Um, and, and that finding a place where you can chill out and, and just not keep thinking about all the problems on your desk for some hour or two, uh, I, I think it's essential. Um, in the summertime, I go up to the Adirondacks in upstate New York, which is beautiful. Um, I kayak around, I, you know, hike around, I take pictures and, and I read. So the other thing that, that um, presidents must do and must make time for, and it's hard sometimes, you have to keep reading. And, and there's so many meetings and so much demand on your time that it's easy enough to put that off. You know, it's kind of like flossing. Um, well, I try to do a book a week if I can, you know, that, that there's always something I need to learn. Um, if I am reading uh, something on the internet or I'm at a lecture and I hear a book cited, I will immediately download the book. I have on my phone about a thousand books on my Kindle. Um, and, and why is that important? We learn, we're a learning community. We should be the chief student in our community. Um, we should also ask the faculty for their recommendations and find out what they're assigning to their students and do the reading. All of that is about recharging, you know, because if we don't recharge our brains intellectually, if all we do is think about the leaky roofs and the budget not balancing and the parking lots, our brains are going to rot. <laughs> so, uh, so if we're intellectually recharged, uh, we are recharged for the business. So is there a recent book or something that you have read that you'd like to share as a recommendation? Well, um, there's a couple of my gosh, I'm looking at, at the, the huge pile and stack on my desk right now. Um, there's a book by um, a, a professor at uh, Villanova University, actually, Jerry Beyer wrote a book called Just Universities, and it's oh. about the social justice tradition in Catholic higher education. Um, now, that sounds a little bit inside baseball, but it was a really great book, and I really, really enjoyed reading that. And it's a little more of an industry book, but, you know, I, I mean, it was, um, for me, very important. Um, I love historical biography, so I also just finished the second volume of Ulrich, um, uh, uh, Ulrich's uh, biography of Hitler. Um, oh. It's a two-volume series, and um, I, I read the first one. Uh, a couple of years ago, and and the parallels to some of today's history are stunning. And so that was, uh, it's a little bit of a depressing read, but it was a great read. Um, and then just today, I downloaded a book I can't wait to read. It's called um, Fugitive, Pedago Pe Fugitive Pedagogy um, uh, by a, a Harvard professor who wrote about the life of Carter Woodson um, in mm -hmm. uncovering the pedagogy of Black teachers in schools. Um, where they were punished for teaching a, a black curriculum. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading that. So so I'm always kind of looking for new and different kinds. Once in a while, I'll add a trashy novel to the list just because <laughs> um, usually when I'm on vacation. Uh, but most of the time I'm looking for books that will help me either to understand politics or understand this business. Mm, those all sound good. I'm going to yeah. add them to my list. And the the Hitler 
uh, that I actually had that one on my list and I hadn't oh, gotten to it. So it's excellent. And, you know, yeah. he writes well enough that it's, it's a kind of a quick read, you know, yeah. it's not dense like some history books. So. Right. But I'll have to steal myself. It sounds like if it's a, got a bit of a depressing. Um, well, um, the, the rise of authoritarians and the behavior of demagogues, um, yep. what's, you know, you're not supposed to make the analogy today, but um, it, it crosses time. Um, yeah. And the, the warning signs for today are all there in that book. Mm, sounds like it. Yeah. So, okay. So our last question, and we always have a signature question we ask of all of our guests. And, and for you, I just have to ask about the future. And mm -hmm. so my question is this, as you look to the future, what mm -hmm. matters most to you about your work at Trinity Washington University? What what do you view as most essential to preserve? What mm -hmm. new directions remain that you mm -hmm. think need to be pursued? And is there anything that the university needs to let go of? Oh, <laughs> well, there's a lot we need to let go of still. You know, what's hard about these, these historic places, 125 years were historic. You see that old building behind me, that's my main hall. And that building's never gonna go away, but it needs to be renovated. But there's another old building I'm trying to renovate now. It's very expensive, actually, renovation. Um, we have some new buildings. But um, what we need to let go is the idea that the glorious past um, is, is everything and that somehow today is not as good as. And we've been working on that. Today is glorious. Today is, today is the future glorious past, you know? Um, and so each generation needs to be appreciated and also have appreciation for what has come before. But... Um, We've been working hard at Trinity and we've been a little bit successful, but we have to be more successful about not letting the past tie us down um, and, and that we have to move forward. And that goes to not only the um, demographics of the student body, uh, but also curricula. So um, the big challenge on the go forward is how do we keep reinventing liberal arts in a way that is life-giving for what the world needs our graduates to be able to do 10 and 20 and 50 years from now? Um, and that's where, you know, um, there does tend to always be some resistance to the idea that, um, you know, the English major no longer rules the roost at all. And um, the real question is, how do we how do we get the English and history and, and sociology faculty to develop general education program that is supportive of the nurses and occupational mm -hmm. therapists and social workers? and all those who are getting professional degrees. That's the tension it, at Trinity. That's the tension in the academy. Uh, the business community is leaning on all of us, including Trinity, for more workforce-focused programs. Um, we're starting information technology. We, we started data analytics last year. And you know the traditional faculty goes a little nuts about that kind of stuff. And instead, we have to help faculty see that as not threatening, but as life-giving. And all of those liberal arts have a role and a place in the ongoing curricula. Um, there is nothing, I always say to the faculty, no discipline disappears, but we have to be realistic about what majors will be going forward. Um, and that's hard because the academy is still built on the major gives you life um, and not gen ed. And, and that, that can continue to be the dominant theme um, for this. So, so that's what I hope. Um, obviously, I've been at this a long time. Um, at some point, uh, when I'm finished our 125th anniversary and finish the capital campaign I'm in, you know, at some point somebody else is going to have to do this. So my other goal is 
to leave Trinity as strong as possible so that when someone else comes in uh, to take up this great work, um, they won't be rehabilitating a place, um, but that they will be able to march forward with new directions and new thinking about where we go from here. Um, my goal is to be sure Trinity is in good enough shape to celebrate her 150th and 200th birthday. Um, I will not be around for those, I don't think. <laughs> so, but I, I will be here in spirit by that time. Well, thank you so, so very much. This has been really inspiring. And I, I understand the adjectives people have used to describe you. I've just experienced <laughs> them all firsthand. So I wish you the best. Uh, in this academic year and celebrating this really wonderful milestone and uh, I'm grateful for the, the work that you do leading one of our significant women's colleges uh, in this country. Well, thank you, Melissa, for having me. And I return the compliment to you and also to Baypath, another one of our favorite institutions. And someday maybe I should come back and turn the tables and interview you on the podcast. Oh. So. <laughs> well, but thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thank okay. you. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free leading edge thinking and higher education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening.